Pretty Policeman, Multiple Paradox Net Files. These are some of The Little Darlings. It's great to be gay. Our favourite episode titles. Right on, sister. Please be gentle. From all three seasons of the logbooks. You might well be very angry. So we've printed them on a t-shirt and a poster. Crash pad needed. Kiss my rump. And our limited stock is for sale at thelogbooks.org. Interested and willing? With profits going to Switchboard. Thank you for being here. So take a look at thelogbooks.org slash shop. This is a logbook entry from April 19th, 1975. Volunteer, Estelle. Shagaramas, reported not gay at all. Straits have been making comments when gays dance together. Gays have been huddled together in a corner so they will feel ill at ease. So what is going on? March 9th, 1976. A woman caller rang about a club for women in Westbourne Grove called Nikki's. Does it exist or is it a hoax? I grew up in Devon, which was pretty isolated, and I think had one gay pub and one gay club in the entire county. I spent most of my teens until I left for university driving around southwest England um, in search of gay, gay nights and then sleeping in my car. I remember a night that I went out on in 2015 when I was like pretty newly out to basically a great party and, and just feeling like a part of it. That was, that was amazing. And that feeling, I think, is still something that LGBT people look for today when they're going out. You're listening to The Logbooks, stories from Britain's LGBTQ plus history and conversations about being queer today. In partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. I'm Adam Smith. I'm Tash Walker. And in this episode, we are looking through all of the logbook entries from Switchboard that are to do with nightlife. And there is a bloody lot of them. Episode two huddled together in a corner. All these gay bars and lesbian clubs, with that you got uh, the building of a community, you got people working there, you got people meeting people to have sex, romance, but also so much came out of that which had um, big implications for the political movements of the time. I bet quite a few of the early meetings of Switchboard were probably held in the pub as well. Yeah, no doubt about that. (laughs) And this episode's stories kind of start with that logbook entry that we heard at the beginning about Chagaramas, which was a a club on Neal Street in London's West End. And that changed from, I looked this up, a disco place to a punk place um, around about the late 70s. And even though it's now a speedo shop, (laughs) so you can go and buy your budgie smugglers in there. It's an interesting case study in how the nightlife scene changed and how that reflected what was going on for gay men and lesbians at the time as well, as Jeremy explains. The big game changer in the 70s was punk, when punk started. My name is Jeremy Adams and I'm 60 years old and I've lived through many things. 
you know, and suddenly all the Donna Summer records and all the discos sort of disappeared. But but the thing that punk brought about with it was anything went. It suddenly, you know, the sexuality barriers were down. You would go to, to sort of clubs, you know, where whoever the Pogues and Mones were performing, and you would see men and men, women and women, and it suddenly started to become a much more accepting, who cares kind of world. So, so that, w that was a big game changer. Everybody was sort of emerging into something new. I think that was what punk was. It just started a whole kind of new, more accepting, you could be more who you wanted to be, you didn't have to hide anymore. Whereas prior to that, like, you know, I said before with the gay clubs, you were, you know, you'd dress up, but you'd, you'd run into the club and then you could be yourself in the club. Whereas now it's like bleeding into the streets, but a sort of grudging acceptance as well. Here's um, a logbook entry. It was from the 17th of December, 1975, and the call was taken by John. A woman caller asked if there was any anywhere for women to go after 11pm. As far as I can see, there isn't. Is this really so? Any suggestions? I think there were probably gay male clubs, but nothing for lesbians or mixed. So actually, we used to do our own club. We used to hire church halls and venues, whatever, and we bought disco equipment and we used to run our own discos for lesbians. Coventry actually was, um, they had quite a lot of stuff going on musically and a lot of clubs there at that time. Uh, there was polystyrene, a lot of the punk bands and um, some women's bands started there. Pauline Black and the two-tone bands. I'm Neville. Yes, my name's James. Gay bars in London were, there were quite a number of them. I came down the King's Road and I wandered into a pub. And I remember just glancing in, looking across, and there were two young men sitting by the bar. And I thought, good Lord, mm. they're gay. And I looked round the pub. Heavens, it's gay. You know, the first thing I remember in London was the Salisbury pub in St Martin's Lane which was known as the Actors Pub. And it wasn't a gay pub as such, but, you know, some of the acting gentlemen are <laughs> gay. And eyes would meet across a crowded bar. I like going in there because the woman in charge of the food counter thought I looked terribly thin and wasted and used to give me double portions of everything. I was there in those days. Mm. And it was it was great fun. Um, and, you know, one, one would, so the eyes would catch and you'd go out and you'd suddenly become very interested in a bookshop window uh, and somebody else would catch you up and that's how it worked. <laughs> the great institution of the 1960s, and I think James knows this, is the Rockingham Club. You had to be proposed and seconded. You had to wear a collar and tie at all times. Holding hands, let alone kissing, was not on. Uh, and, oh, you passed a commissioner to go in, then a secretary, and you had to sign in. And it was all beautifully furnished with antiques, and the chaps had white coats and brought you your drinks sitting in a nice armchair. Oh, it was all lovely. Uh, but, you see, you knew, and I'm not going to name some of the people I saw there, but some quite famous people went there because they knew they were safe.
the hardest part was often finding out where to even go in the first place or who to ask and that's exactly why Switchboard was born to be a first point of contact to use so many people who had so many questions where was open what was the right place for them where were even any gay bars where they lived um, so here's former volunteer Femi a really large proportion of our calls were about people who were looking for somewhere to go. We had maps, massive great maps with pins in. A big one of London and then a bigger one of the UK. Pins had different colours. If the map had a club on it, it might be red pin. And if it was a social group, it might be a yellow pin. So that you could stand up and take the phone receiver with you and um, give this information out quite quickly. And it was supported by files as well. We really needed to be quite quick with those. People would ring and say, um, I've only got... You know, XP <laughs> to put into the phone box what's open tonight in such and such a place you had to leap up your geography had to get my geography had to get really good with that you're in where oh okay <laughs> western supermare no sorry <laughs> there's nothing there um and then it was off the nearest one to you is here and phone down and off again they were easy they were fun they were good for uh, those people who knew that we were a, you know a reliable resource and they were good for us, I think, as volunteers as well. We learned a lot. If you wanted to know what clubs and pubs there were in a town, uh, you would either have to buy a copy of Gay News, which printed a directory every fortnight, or you would have to call Switchboard. So we got lots and lots of those kinds of, you know, what, where's the gay pub in Leicester kind of calls. February 18th, 1976, John writes... Does anyone know what's happened to the catacombs? What hours, etc.? Question mark, question mark. Also, Valentino's underlined. Someone told me that it closed down a week ago. Even when you could find out where to go, it wasn't easy. Stepping into a queer venue is always a bit like coming out and showing the world who you are. The first gay bar I decided to go to was the William the fourth was it in Hampstead I'm Nick Partridge I'm 63 years old and I remember walking past three times before picking up the courage to walk in and I think that's a very common memory for so many what's it going to be like inside there where do I go from here I came down to London in 77 and we would go sometimes to uh, some very small club nights, I mean literally the, above the pub. Uh, the pub that is now Central Station had a different name at that time and we would go there and there were dances upstairs very early on when I was in London. Uh, but the late 70s got very exciting because first of all we had bolts which appeared on green lanes which was amazing once a week and then we would have um, bang in central London which was very lively we would go down there on a Monday night and that was the perennial joke on switchboard was all the people all the men who would call and say is bangs open on a it's Monday it's open there was such a big scene during this time, each venue catering to a slightly different crowd. Um, one place that pops up time and time again in the logbooks is the Colhern. It was a splendid Victorian pub. The splendid lady who played the piano, it was a grand piano, Mark Hughes. She was large and plump and heavily made up uh, and would beam and smile at everybody, particularly if you bought her a drink. It was always very, very busy. At closing time, 11 o'clock or 10.30 on Sundays, people would congregate outside, sometimes for ages. 
When you went in, one side of the bar was leather and uh, biker gear, and the other side was cigarette holders and Angora sweaters. Uh, so many people <laughs> used to adopt uh, the very stratified attitudes that were reflected in heterosexual society, which also impinged on class. Hello, I'm uh, Ted Brown. I'm 69 years old. I used to like the, the leather side, uh, mainly because to me it seemed slightly less arti artificial and also I couldn't afford <laughs> the expensive <laughs> clothing that uh, the Angora sweater people were, were wearing. I used to wear a leather jacket and leather jeans and that was partly for practical reasons, because I, in fact, did have a motorbike myself. And I was much more comfortable in a, a more masculine environment at the time. Although I've learned over time to not worry so much about maintaining a masculine aura myself. That was one scene where there were absolutely no class barriers. Whatever doesn't matter whether you were, well, better not say a royal prince, <laughs> but not much under that. I could tell a few stories here, but I might get into trouble if I did, uh, <laughs> even though most of them are dead now. It was, it was a curious thing. I don't quite know how I got into it, so to speak. I, and I was very careful at first. I knew we all thought they were a whole load of sadomasochists, and we didn't want anything to do with that. But they weren't. They weren't. They just liked going out dressed up in leather. <laughs> that was all. It was all very harmless. As someone mm -hmm. said, once said to me, in that group you often hear some of the best criticisms of what's on at the Opera House. <laughs> it was true. <laughs> there was the MSC, wasn't there? The Motorsports Club, yeah. um, of which I think you were a member, when you? I was. Know. But I do remember they had weekends away and a friend of ours used to go and be their cook as much as think. He had the biggest collection of opera programs I've ever seen. I mean, that was his whole joy of life, was, was a mixture of cooking for the MSC and going to the opera. And many gay pubs and clubs are explicitly political. It's the 70s, and the act of going into a gay pub was seen as political. And if you wore a badge, too... This is from August 23rd, 1975. York lesbian group looking for new meeting place as landlord has become oppressive. He is also refusing to serve people wearing gay badges. In the 70s, it was uh, very difficult to be gay, um, to be out and gay. Um, you'd get a lot of hostility on the street. I mean, we used to wear lesbian badges and that felt like quite a risky thing to do because you could be identified as a lesbian. And um, several times, uh, one or other of us did get beaten up. Um, and so it was quite frightening actually going into a pub as a group of lesbians dressed, you know, and having like cropped hair and dressed as a lesbian, wearing a lesbian badge, like a huge fluorescent badge that says Lesbians Ignite. That tea house was a venue for gay people, but we 
had to keep quiet and stay in a corner and all the rest of it. And we went in for one change and said, we don't want to be subdued anymore. The police were called and they turned up. They started being very difficult and I whipped out my camera and they immediately calmed down a bit because they were, we were getting photographed. This is from the logbook at Switchboard uh, in June 1976, phoned in to say that someone had been thrown out of a pub in Forest Hill for wearing a gay badge, that's the bricklayer's arms. The landlord said, in quotes, it is in the best interest of customers that Paul should be permanently banned. So there's going to be a demonstration uh, at Thursday at 8pm in the lounge bar with everyone wearing gay badges. <laughs> it was still really controversial and to a degree seen as confrontational just to wear a gay badge, which many people, if you wore them down the street, would not have known their significance. But despite how terrifying just going to a pub could be, or even such a risk, it's worth it. Here's the story of two women, Elaine and Lynn. They're separate lives. Uh, Elaine's in Leytonstone in London and Lynn's in Derbyshire. were on such different paths. The switchboard took calls asking for which pubs to go to. Their lives were beginning to change forever. And it was a Sunday afternoon. I remember it as if it was yesterday. My friends had fixed me up with a date with this guy and he came and he picked me up and he drove me to the seaside and there was just nothing. I was driving back in the car and I thought, I can't do this, I'm not being true to myself. And I got out of the car, I went straight in, I found the number for Gay Switchboard and I rang. My name is Lynn. I'm 70 years old and it's taken me all these years to be comfortable about my sexuality and to be able to talk openly and freely about it. I spoke to a volunteer called Val and um, I was crying and you know she really helped me a lot. She told me of um, a place to go and it was in Green Lanes and I went actually the next morning, the Monday morning I went into work early and I made sure everything was done and then I hopped on a train but I remember I was really oh gosh, apprehensive and scared <laughs> and I went upstairs and there was a bar and music and I suppose it must have been about nine o'clock at night at that time I got a drink and I sat down and just took in the atmosphere. And I remember, I looked at the side of the bar and there were two women. And they were stood together drinking and they were looking at each other face to face. And it was as if they were the only women in that room. And I thought, I want that. I am Elaine. I'm 74 years old. 
My brother was is gay, but he left home at 17 until probably came back in the 70s. Life was beginning to be a bit different, I would say, because there was a gay club in Leytonstone High Road, which was the first ever in our experience. And so I did start going with him in those years. And I think I did start to see another sort of lifestyle. It was right opposite the fire station in Leytonstone High Road. And it was in one of the little cafe-type places. It sort of it was a bit secret going in. I think it was a club you had to sign in. And once you were inside, there was lots of different lovely cocktails and drinks. It was quite smoky at the time, because obviously we were allowed to smoke where we liked, and I think we all did smoke in those days. If I think of what the area was like, I think people were quite intimidated by um, the sort of people that were outside of the club. You know, there were a few local gay men, not so much women. I can't even remember women being very much in that sort of lifestyle. I think they felt more closeted, really. A few months um, after I broke up with my husband, I phoned Gay Switchboard, and that would have been probably in early 82. And I spoke to a woman called Val, who was really helpful to me. We talked a lot about life and how difficult it was, but she said that there was somebody called Lynn up in Derbyshire in a tiny little village. And she asked if I would like to meet her. So I met Elaine. And she asked me what I wanted to do, or would I like to go anywhere specifically that, that evening. And I said I'd like to go to Gateways. And she'd never been. And so she said, OK. She thought she knew where it was, down the King's Road. And so we got dressed up. And in those days, I think I had a fur jacket and a, a handbag, a large handbag. And, you know, it was, it was really, when I think about it now... Anyway, we got in the taxi, and we didn't want to ask for Gateways... So he said, could you take us down the King's Road? When we went into Gateways, they were playing um, Joan Armour Trading, Willow. So we had a dance to that. That was later. Yeah. Remember? <laughs> they were fast dancers and then the music yeah. changed. Yeah, but it, it... And I looked around and you looked at me and we, had, we danced to Willow. We did, we did. I must just say as well, Lynn had a ginormous handbag because she obviously didn't realise <laughs> gay North. women didn't carry great big handbags. I had a fur jacket as well, didn't I? <laughs> I've locked that out, I think. <laughs> <laughs> the bouncer woman took my handbag. I have to leave it at the desk. But basically, we looked around and we just had this magical feeling. It yeah. felt like a homecoming. I know it sounds a bit corny, but it really did, didn't it? Mm. That one or two calls probably had a profound effect. Both because I met Lynn and we're still together 138 years later. <laughs> and also because it inspired me. I left the health service and I went to work for the National Children's Home managing a helpline. That's such a heartwarming story to hear Elaine and Lynn talk about how they first met through Switchboard. Of course, not something that we do today, 
but I think something that was often needed in the 70s, especially when people were looking to find other people um, who were also LGBT+. And it sounds like they had a great night out in, in Gateways, which is no longer there on the King's Road, unfortunately. <laughs> Listening to those stories, I can't help but feel so full of emotion, hearing their experiences of walking into gay spaces for the first time. It's something I always... Um, remember feeling myself albeit not so underground but um, I just I was just so desperate to talk to someone and see people who were like me become part of this very special club which I was born into with a pass but no clues as how to get in or to get the badge queer spaces are just like so so important because of all of that that's why we spoke to the folks behind Aphrodite one of London's hottest nights today Aphrodite is a club night for all queer women, trans and non-binary babes and their friends. It's London's only ancient Greek-themed lesbian night. Um, And we only play Rihanna, basically. Uh, Hi, I'm Flo, and I co-run Aphrodite with some of my friends. Uh, Aphrodite has been going for four years now. It's the club night we wanted to go to. And that wasn't available at the time. And we were like, how hard can it be to find lesbians who want to play pop music? Four and a half years later, it's actually extremely difficult. (laughs) 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 If it's not techno, they're not interested. But um, there's been enough of an audience for us to keep going for four years. But yeah. Uh, My name's Hannah. I help co-run Aphrodite. I mostly do the emails and the pictures of butts that we put on the posters. We really started in Dalston's only ungentrified pub. Um, there were like men playing snooker upstairs and then it was like a basement full of lesbians downstairs. At one point, a like the worst moment when we were like, we have to leave this venue was a fluorescent light tube like fell from the ceiling during like when everyone dancing and I saw a guy like raving with it. Like a, like it was a glow stick and I was like, and I like took it outside like it was my child and I lay it on the pavement and then it just exploded. And I was like, oh my God, we have to leave this place. Someone's going to die in a horrible fire. We like to be able to identify ourselves to um, our customers and our guests who are coming. Now we have little badges that say official worshipper. Those are quite useful because they can go on everyone who is a promoter. If we've got the badges, people just know that we're like here to help we're essentially going to be friendly and that we'll come with them if they want to report stuff to the venue or if they want to report something to security or if they want something just just to tell us anything really just to be like oh well this could change or can you tell me where this is or how do how does stuff work here that sort of thing or where can I find single ladies (laughs) and there's usually a corner at one of the previous ones we had a trans guy who had taken his top off, and to the security staff, they perceived them in a certain way, and in a way that they were not necessarily comfortable with, and they were a bit worried that their bosses wouldn't be happy about that. And so that person came and got me, and so did the security. Everything went fine, and we all just had a conversation about how we would like that to continue. And then eventually we got to duct tape, and it was fine. And then (laughs) the duct tape flew away and then it was fine and I was just like whoa whoa to the security and it was all fine and now now people can do basically whatever they like apart from the extra naughty stuff officially we frown upon that (laughs) (laughs) the scene is more nights based and I don't necessarily think that's 
a bad thing because it stops you being homogenous. It stops you going to the same tired venue over and over. And it does give more competition to the actual gay venues. And the impetus should be for them to change. So the ones that are opening in the last couple of years, like the Glory, like the Chateau, they have a much more progressive attitude to their nights. They might let you have a Saturday if you can fill both floors. You just have to prove that you can. <laughs> Good luck getting 10,000 followers on Instagram. <laughs> um, but they are a bit more open to it. And we'll see, we'll see what happens with Aphrodite, whether it moves on to somewhere else. For Aphrodite, like, we don't have a venue. Like, we, don't, we don't even own anything apart from like, our likes and follows. I mean, it's like it's all it's all we actually have is two thousand Facebook likes. We are just an idea, really. So it's that that's a big problem for us, and that's quite scary because if like Facebook suddenly disappears, Instagram suddenly disappears, Twitter suddenly like we're nothing. Then, then how will we tell people where we are? Yeah, we're we're, we're trying to move more to direct um, marketing because it's really difficult for our Facebook adverts to ever get approved. Sort of in the last two years. It, our reach has divided itself by 10 um, if you're not doing a paid for advert and then the adverts have to meet a very specific set of guidelines you can't have any nudity or any sort of allusion to the female body in in your any of your posters or any of your pictures doesn't matter how far back it is away from the actual event and the actual advert you can't have any references to gender sex or sexuality you can't have any swearing you can't have anything even if you like target it specifically at the people who've liked it or specifically at lgbt lgbt women over 18 it's really difficult to get it approved and actually this is my favorite thing to uh, to slag off is that when you when your picture is deemed not appropriate you go onto the guidelines and you stroll through and you see what is appropriate and they've got a little tick next to the statue of David naked but they won't let a naked a semi-naked Aphrodite even though it's a painting and even though I've emailed them three times (laughs) about it Um, and so that's a scary thing Uh, uh, the measure of success for Aphrodite for us as selfish as it is is that we still enjoy it and I think that's quite a healthy thing, a healthy way to view it. If you're tied up in your night too much, say you want to break it as an international DJ uh, or start your own label or start your own fashion line using a club night, it may become hollow for you because it's very difficult to run and very difficult to get validation from if you only have that parameter. So you might not be invited to go to Glastonbury to be one of, at this, one of the smaller tents. You might not be flown out to Berlin to a fellow queer night. You, these things may not happen. You might just get one printout in timeout that you can send to your mum. And that ought to be enough as long as you're still having fun with it. So what's coming up in the next episode? Well, we've been on a night out now, so the next obvious thing is to talk about sex. Let's do it. Calls to Switchboard are confidential, so to bring the logbooks to life, we've changed the callers' names. The Logbooks is produced by Giovanni Dave, Adam Smith and Tash Walker, in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. If you think other people would like the logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. 
These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at thelogbooks.org. Our music is by Tom Foskett Barnes and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto. Thanks to Steph Dickers and team at the Bishopsgate Institute, the folks at ACAST, Gareth Mitchell at Imperial College London, the staff and volunteers at Switchboard, and all the contributors who shared their stories. 45 years on, Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10am to 10pm every day. If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast or need to discuss anything to do with gender identity or sexuality, you can call Switchboard on 0300 330 0630. Email chris at switchboard.lgbt or instant message via switchboard.lgbt where you can also donate money or time to help.